You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, uh, so we had our last application Sunday, I guess about six weeks ago, in between the first three churches and then the last four churches that we've looked at. Easter was kind of sandwiched in there as well. Um, So we're going to kind of look back briefly at all seven churches today. We're going to read through the text. I'm going to give you some questions that I want you to seek to answer as we read through that. Um, But just as a reminder for maybe those that haven't been here for the duration of this study, uh, we looked at the church at Ephesus, church that was very busy, very active, uh, very effective within their community, but a church that had begun to do things more out of duty than delight, had really lost their motivation of love in their service for Jesus. And so Jesus addresses those things. The church at Smyrna, um, a church that was enduring persecution, a church that had other persecution coming that Jesus warned them about, but wanted to help them understand that while they looked poor in man's eyes, they were very rich uh, in areas that matter in a spiritual sense, and uh, they were given instructions to persevere. Uh, Pergamum, a church that had compromised, had let things within the church that needed to be cut out, or Jesus was going to come and was very serious in the type of judgment that he was talking about bringing upon that church. Uh, Thyatira, another church that was very similar in that um, while they had experienced growth, uh, it was uh, not going to allow the compromise in their church to be excused. And so um, Jesus addresses the compromise that had taken place within their church, things that were being tolerated in order to stay friends with the world. Sardis was a church that was described as being a church that was almost dead, a dying church, um, church that had lost its effectiveness, and uh, we'll talk again about why um, that was the case. Philadelphia, a church that was very faithful, was commended for a lot of their actions, and were told that they were going to be given future opportunities for gospel uh, ministry because of their faithfulness. And so God was going to open up greater doors uh, for them to be able to serve because of their faithfulness and the little things that God had given to them. And then last week we looked at Laodicea, a church that had become very ineffective. Um, They were busy enough to where they weren't dead Uh, but they were ineffective in the sense that they had become very lukewarm in their approach to the Christian life. And uh, Jesus um, strongly encourages them to reach an attitude of repentance as well. All right, so we're going to read through Revelation 2 and 3 and just remind ourselves of the things that we've covered over the past couple of months. And as we do so, I want you, and if you've got notes from the back, then you've got those in front of you with these three questions. And I want you to jot down anything that stands out to you as we read through this text. I did this this morning as I was preparing Um, some of our discussion today. And question number one, I think that we really want to take away from our study with the churches is what do we learn about Jesus? What what does Jesus reveal about himself? I told you that the letters are kind of broken down in terms of Jesus reveals character traits about himself at the beginning of each letter. Then he gives either commendation or condemnation, depending on the attitude and the actions of the church, but you've got commendation, things that are good, condemnation, things that need to change, and then you have instructions about the future. Um, And so I want us to see what do we learn about Jesus? Question number two, what do we learn about his expectations for the church? What do we see in these letters that communicate to us what Jesus values in a local church? And then question number three, what do we learn that despises Jesus? What are the things that really are addressed by Jesus, things that matter to him from a negative standpoint, things that we as a church obviously need to avoid to steer clear of some of the promised judgment that was going to come to those churches if they didn't repent? All right, so we're looking for things that we learn about Jesus, things that we learn about his expectations for the church, and things that we also learn that Jesus despises. All right, so we're going to start reading with Revelation chapter 2. We've divvied out all those verses, so... Um, We'll just kind of read through both uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3, giving different people an opportunity to read. So who's starting us off? Bobby? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works 
you did it first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from his place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Barak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works unto the end, uh, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I love you, that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. 
Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. One who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so if we're considering that first question, what do we learn about Jesus? What are some things that stand out to you about the character of Jesus, um, things that we learn about his power and capabilities. Any thoughts on what we learn about Jesus? His authority. All right, his authority. He takes a personal interest in the churches and an ownership of it. Yep, he takes personal interest in the churches. Yep. He He wants to identify himself properly. To the, the words of him, it's always starting with Jesus. Okay, good. He comes across with a lot of passion. Okay, a lot of passion. Instructs and disciplines. Yep. He, uh, he knows everything and can see the true condition of our hearts and our church. Yep, he knows everything and can see the true condition of each church, which also means he can see the condition of each heart. I kind of summarized... Um, my thoughts on, on what we learn about Jesus by saying that he sees everything, knows everything, controls everything, and will properly respond to everything. Um, that, I think that's something that we can definitely take away from how he speaks to these churches, that he's not ignorant about anything happening within these churches. Um, but I think what's encouraging to us is that he's also a, a God who controls everything happening to these churches, right? Even those churches that find themselves in situations where uh, they are in the, the living room of Satan, basically, where persecution and attacks are coming their way, Jesus describes those situations as such to where you're reminded that he's in control, right? Even if, even if they're being thrown into prison, they're being thrown into prison for 10 days, right? Like there's a cutoff to the amount of evil that's allowed to be applied to those churches, um, Jesus sees everything, he knows everything, he controls everything, and will properly respond to everything, right? We see Jesus' intimate knowledge of each individual in each one of these churches flesh itself out when he talks about judgment coming upon those who don't repent and reward coming upon those who persevere, right? There's these great promises that are extended to people who persevere, who don't quit, who remain faithful, who endure to the end, But then there's promises of judgment to those who don't, who compromise, who align themselves with evil, um, that those people have a proper response coming their way as well. And so I think um, in ways that we probably already know from other passages of Scripture, this isn't necessarily new information to some of you, but it's certainly a great reminder as we examine the text and see the truth of who Jesus is as he speaks in his own terms, right? This isn't people talking about Jesus. This is Jesus revealing his character in his own words to these churches. And I think these things really jump out to me as things that we can take away from uh, our study of these seven churches and the letters given to them. Question number two, what do we learn about his expectations for the church? If you were to try to summarize a lot of the things that are contained in these seven letters, things that Jesus expects of every local church, how would you try to pass on what we've learned together to someone else who maybe hasn't studied these yet? Yep. Uh, I think Jesus. one of the biggest expectations that Jesus expects, a love for his name. All right, a love for his name. 
Yeah. He wants us to hear what he's saying and repent. Yep. Hear and repent based on what we're, uh, what's being communicated to us. He wants us to persevere. Persevere. Good. He doesn't want us to settle for mediocrity. All right. Don't settle for mediocrity. Um, he wants the works that we do to be out of a genuine heart, of real love. Yep, he's definitely concerned about the motivation and the reasoning behind the things that we're doing, that it's uh, motivated out of love. And a lot of these things aren't broken up to where he says it only to one church, right? Like these ideas kind of circulate back in different forms, maybe, in different ways that it's communicated. And we've talked how each church has things communicated to them in such a way where it, it makes sense based on their context, right? The idea of being a pillar in that temple is tied to the fact that that city was prone to earthquakes where the temple and the structures were crumbling, and here they're talked about being placed into a permanent temple, a permanent position where they won't have to come out of it again. And so a lot of times the language is tied to that specific city and its context. Yeah. What strikes me a lot about this is that we know that Christ controls everything and that things happen to us that are always within his control. And we know that he could cause the churches to be what he wants the church to be, but we have a part in that ourselves. It is up to us to meet him halfway or whatever you want to call it, but we have responsibilities. We can't just say, oh, well, God's in control of that and let him take care of it. We right. have work that we need to do. Yep, so the danger in highlighting the sovereignty of God is that we could go too far with that and assume that there's no responsibility on our part to participate in that. And Jesus is very clear that there are actions that the churches are supposed to take, um, that they're to respond to what they're hearing, um, and that they're to repent and they're to take action. And so there is definitely responsibility placed upon the individuals within these churches. Any other thoughts? I think there's definitely an expectation of holiness okay. uh, that the church should have. Yep, I think holiness both in belief and in action. Holding to true teaching. True, true teaching. teaching. Yep. I think we've hit just about on every one of them that I had listed. Um, good works motivated by love are certainly uh, something that uh, Jesus values and expects within the church, true doctrine, uh, perseverance and endurance, even if it brings suffering and death, right? That the expectation for the endurance and the, the perseverance is that it carries all the way to the end, regardless of what external pressures that may bring upon you. Uh, repentance is certainly um, a key aspect um, contained uh, in, in a lot of these letters, reality over rep reputation. Several of these churches have a reputation that doesn't match up with the reality of that church. And we've talked about how Jesus sees past the reputation and sees exactly what's happening. And so you had some churches that had a great reputation in the community, but they were dead on the inside, right? They were, they were poor on the inside, even though they looked rich, even though they looked like they had everything together. Others that looked like they were floundering and suffering and that they were small and didn't have much of an effect, Jesus highlights their effectiveness and their faithfulness. Um, and then attentiveness to the word, whether that's hearing and responding um, to the words that Jesus gives at that moment, or whether that's highlighting the fact that they should have been attentive to the word all along, because some of these churches, Jesus commends them for holding fast to his name, holding fast to his word that had previously been communicated to them. Right? We talked last week that Laodicea was on the, the circulation list for the letter to the Colossians, right? So they had the book of Colossians already in their possession. Um, we looked at those passages in Colossians. So they had already been given the word, and they had not been attentive to it. And so Jesus calls them to repentance and calls them those that have ears to hear, to listen, and to respond. So these are things that, that Jesus clearly highlights as expectations for every local church. And so I think... You know, I told you that coming out of this, I want us to really examine where we're at as a church and examine uh, things that we're doing well that we could be commended for, but things that we may need to adjust and change as well. And I think it's helpful for us to identify the things that Jesus would potentially be um, assessing us with. Um, our, our works and the amount of works that we have and the motivation behind those works, the doctrine that we cling to, 
uh, the perseverance and endurance that we demonstrate, right? Like Jesus isn't in the business of commending quitters, right? Like he, he anticipates this church being able to persevere even when the odds are stacked against them, right? Like they had, some of these churches had really difficult situations and they were, they were expected to persevere through those things. Um, that repentance is to be something that is ongoing within each local church, that as sinful issues arise, as sin is tolerated, those things are to be identified and repented of. Um, he certainly wants us to be uh, tied to a true reality and not just a reputation that may not be accurate, and then certainly being attentive to the word. That last question as we read through that I want you to consider, what do we learn that despises Jesus? What are some things that he's in opposition to that we find um, in these letters that we can highlight? Idolatry. Idolatry. False teachings. False teachings. Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Lukewarmness. Lukewarmness. A lack of repentance. Lack of repentance, yep. So I wrote down false teaching and tied into that idolatry and sexual immorality because that seems to be the focal point for the churches that had fallen prey to that. They had given themselves over to false teachings that oftentimes relaxed the expectations in regards to idolatry and sexual immorality. And while idolatry may not ring as true for us when we think about Old Testament context of idols and false gods, Certainly, we live in a day and age where sexual immorality and relaxation on the standards that we're to uphold within the church in regards to this area has certainly become an issue within the local church setting, that there's, there's a lot of compromise in this area, whether that's a deviation from the way God created it to simply an abuse of it within the church. Um, compromise with evil and culture. Um, is certainly something that Jesus comes back to time and again with some of these churches. Um, we talk specifically about how sometimes that may not always be true within the church where we're showing compromise, but maybe outside the church in some of our friend structure and family structure that there are things that we tolerate from professing Christians and we align our families with some of that. And it can become very confusing, especially to those of us raising children who may see sinful things taking place in the context of our family friend structure and we never see it addressed and may send a mixed message to our kids as to, as to whether this behavior is acceptable or not. And so while it may not be happening within the church, it may be happening right outside our church with individuals in this church that we have to be on guard against. Uh, worldly fear the idea that we would um, give in to the pressures of um, the culture. We see some of these churches giving in to emperor worship, idolatry because of the threat of potentially being persecuted or killed. So Jesus certainly despises worldly fear that would cause us not to persevere or endure. And then half-heartedness comes up a couple of times where people were doing things within the church but not really doing it with full-on effort or with a motivation of love and passion for those that they were doing it to. Uh, I think these are some of the things that are consistent in these letters, things that Jesus despises, and I think things that we need to evaluate with our church as well. Are we guilty of any of these things? And if we are, are we prepared to repent and turn from some of those things if need be? All right, um, so that's kind of a quick review of all the letters. Specifically, over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the last four. We looked at Thyatira, a church that um, is not excused for their compromise. Their growth doesn't excuse their compromise. We said a church must grow in faithful love and ongoing service, but must not compromise by tolerating beliefs or behavior in order to remain in good favor with the world. We said their main issue was a mindset that a lifestyle accepted by the world is not in conflict with a culture of membership within the church. And so this is where we talked about, they were a church that loved deeply and loved greatly, but they had bad doctrine. Like their love wasn't being applied properly. And this is where I told you that we may not be guilty of this as a church in here, compromising with lifestyles and behavior inconsistent with the Christian faith, but we may be doing so outside the church. Now, again, I understand that Jesus was a friend of sinners, and we certainly don't want to detract from that. I think the bigger issue is aligning ourselves with people who identify as Christian, but their behavior would say otherwise, 
in a really blatant way, that we have to be really careful that we don't align ourselves and communicate that that type of stuff is okay when Scripture may be very clear that it's not. And again, we're talking about people who identify themselves as Christians, who claim the Christian faith, who claim the name of Christ, uh, that a church can't grow and be effective if it's aligning itself with that type of behavior. Um, And I think to encourage us, because a lot of times you get from liberal churches that compromise is good in this area that we should love and that, it's, that, that we're aligning ourselves with a God of love. But I think Jesus is very clear in talking with this church that that type of theology and doctrine is more in line with the things of Satan than the things of God. To love and tolerate and not call to repentance those who align themselves with Jesus is a really dangerous thing. Um, we're also told that Thyatira can't serve their way out of their need to repent, right? That their good works don't uh, alleviate the need to repent of their bad works, and that their failure to repent leads, ju- uh, leads to Jesus' judgment upon this church if it doesn't change. The application points that I wanted to draw your attention to once again, and I left you some area to write down specific areas that maybe apply to you that you want to consider further after today as we, as we kind of recap some of these things. Are we ever guilty of working harder rather than repenting? The week that we talked about this, I challenged you that Repentance is something that should be ongoing in the life of a Christian. When we identify areas where we've messed up, areas where we've hurt somebody, areas where we've done the wrong thing, that sometimes our natural reaction is to try to do better and try to work ourselves out of that and try to atone for our mishaps versus simply repenting and confessing where we were wrong. Whether that's in our relationship to God, we know that maybe we've done some things that he would disapprove of, and so tomorrow we're going to try to do better to re-earn his favor. That's That's a misunderstanding of the gospel, right? The gospel is all about repentance and forgiveness, and so I think God craves more the desire for us to see where we've where we've had a mishap, where we've where we've swayed or deviated from his instructions, and that we confess and repent that, right? Like when Jesus calls these churches out for the things that they've done. He always follows that up with repent, right? Like come in humility, acknowledge what you've done is wrong before trying to move forward with good works. And so are we ever guilty of trying to work harder rather than simply repenting and acknowledging where we've uh, wronged, um, either committed a wrong in our relationship with God or committed a wrong in our relationship to others? And then secondly, are we in danger of compromising with culture to remain friends of the world? And this is where I challenged you to examine Again, maybe not what's happening within this church, but within your family structure outside of this church, have you been guilty of compromising with culture in order to remain friends with culture in ways that you've allowed sin to be tolerated um, and potentially exposed some of your family members to that, and it become a blurred line of whether it's acceptable or not acceptable? And we had a great discussion that week. If you didn't attend that week and you want to be a part of that discussion, we've got that podcasted, but there were some great discussion questions at the end of that about... Um, how does this look if you've got a family member, a close family member, a relative who is living in sin and claims to be a Christian? Are we required to break off fellowship completely? And we talked a lot about preparing to spend time with those people, with your kids, like kind of talking through it with your kids. Hey, we're about to go spend time with so-and-so. You know so-and-so is involved in this. We don't agree with that as a family, but because we love this individual, we are gonna spend some time with this individual. But helping your kids not be confused as to, why do we hear stuff taught at church that this is wrong, and then during the week we spend time with these people and they're doing it, and mom and dad seem to be okay with it? Um, so two points of you know, thought application here. Are we guilty of working harder than repenting, and are we in danger of compromising with culture to remain friends with the world? We talked about Sardis. About three weeks ago, a church begins to die when it fails to respond appropriately to the word by living out the gospel through ongoing repentance and faithful obedience. Their main issue, they have relaxed the radical demands of the Christian faith in a pagan culture. They're not receiving any type of outside pressure, right? The Jews and the the empire, they're not bringing outside threats to this church. There's no spiritual tension within this church. There's no false teachers in this church. This church really isn't even on the radar of the enemy because the enemy's not really concerned about this church because this church is basically dead as is, doesn't even need the attention of the enemy. Um, A dying church is guilty of compromising with culture and neglecting God's commands. Jesus highlights both in his instructions to Sardis. 
They're called to wake up, to realize what is happening within their church so they can change it. So Jesus wants them to just kind of step back and do a self-assessment and say, you guys consider where you're at as a church and identify what I'm saying to you as being true. Tells them to complete the works that they've started. Um, Basically a church that kind of starts things and never finishes things, um, which a lot of times will wear on individual members because it begins to look like we're not really doing anything. We just start and stop a lot of things and we never really carry through on certain things and we're becoming a dead church because we never see anything to completion. Um, And so there was some strong instructions given to Sardis and I left you with some application that I want you to reconsider again today. Are you personally infusing life or sucking life from our church based on your personal walk with Jesus and your personal investment into others. I mean, the way that we grow up as a church and the way that we mature as a church and the way that we bring our good works to completion as a church starts with healthy individuals who are personally growing. Because if you're personally growing and you're not dead and you're not lukewarm and you're passionate about following Jesus, that's going to spill over to other people in this church, which is going to lead to personal investment into others' lives. I mean, if you're taking care of your individual responsibilities to love Jesus, pursue Jesus, you can't get very far in the New Testament without seeing the strong commands to love others and serve others around you as you follow Jesus. So if if we're doing that as individuals, we're going to be infusing life into our church. We're not going to be a church made up of uh, a bunch of people who never carry out what they commit to do. We're going to be a church that, that is passionately following Jesus and that naturally spills over into our investment into others and basically calls other people to, to come alongside of us. Um, so are you part of the infusing life into this church group or the part that may suck life from this church? Um, encourage you to consider how you fit into uh, that, especially in light of what the church at Sardis had become. Church at Philadelphia... Uh, is a church that Jesus identifies as being a faithful church to him, uh, a faithful church to his word. And because of that faithfulness, Jesus seeks to give them greater opportunity for influence in order to grow his kingdom. Compare that to uh, the church at Smyrna, who was a faithful church, had clung to his word, had clung to his name. And Jesus says, you guys are going to prison and you're going to die. Versus Philadelphia, who doing kind of the same thing, and Jesus says, I'm going to increase opportunities for you. The people that are throwing Smyrna into jail are the people that are actually going to repent and come to faith in Christ because of your efforts. So I think both are commended, both are honored. The results are just different. The results are just different based on maybe things that we don't even fully understand about God's plan. But there's certainly uh, the, the reminder to us here that faithfulness leads to greater opportunity a lot of times. And that's certainly true of this church. Jesus starts to open up doors, doors of greater opportunity. And we kind of tied that into, we want to be a church that's faithful. Hopefully we're doing a a good job of being faithful to the word here. And hopefully as we continue to pray about the long-term future of our church and the location of our church, that God may be opening up doors of opportunity for us to increase our ability to expose others to the gospel as well. Um. The application that we talked about, kind of more of a personal opportunity for you to assess and to think through the the power of Jesus and what he's capable of doing. Are there any new opportunities that I need Christ to open for me? You know, we take a lot of prayer requests each week, and we talk a lot of times about situations that that need a door to be opened, right? Whether that's someone praying for a job or or someone praying for for an individual or family member or friend that is sick and uh, needing um, potentially... Uh, some type of health situation to come about in that person's life. And um, we certainly serve a, a Jesus who reminds us in this letter that he opens up doors of opportunities. And then potentially you've been given new opportunities to consider um, and really kind of weighing out how do we seek wisdom to approach those opportunities that are given to us to know whether or not to take advantage of them or not. Because we talked a couple of different places where uh, sometimes doors open and God's people go through them, and sometimes doors open, and they don't go through them because it's not right, and there's not a peace in that person's spirit to do so. Um, So some things to consider there as well. And then lastly, we looked last week at the church at Laodicea, a church that loses its effectiveness, loses its right to exist unless it repents and returns to a zealous attitude for good works that serves Christ's kingdom. 
Uh, this is a church that had become ineffective due to their lukewarm approach to church life. I mean, they had just become kind of a, a casual church that, that was neither hot nor cold. They really weren't accomplishing a whole lot, and it was due to individuals in the church kind of taking a lackadaisical approach to church life, to membership, to um, the gospel, to the radical demands that Christ calls us to. They had taken a lukewarm approach to that, and Jesus says, if that's the approach you're going to take, then you don't really need to exist anymore. You're not effective, and so we don't need you. Um, and, and, and that's strong words for us, that uh, Jesus is going to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish and doesn't have to have us. Um, he uses us as if we, if, if we remain in the effective field where we're, we're responding and doing all the things that we talked about, those expectations that he has for a local church. Um, this church wasn't meeting those expectations, and Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, shows up and says, I'm informing you of it before I take it out. Before I take you away and your effectiveness is completely rendered um, non-existent, I'm informing you of it, and I'm asking you to repent and to turn and to make things right so that you can reignite your effectiveness, which left us with some pretty strong application last week, and hopefully you've been able to continue considering this as it leads into accountability groups this month. I, I challenged you to, to make this a point of discussion. What potential areas of your life might cause someone to think you are lukewarm. We talked a lot last week about what being lukewarm means, and there's some vagueness in, in it as far as how it's clearly defined in Scripture. But it's certainly the idea of a half-hearted approach to the things that we're called to be. And are there any potential areas in your life that would cause someone to think that you're lukewarm? And how can you change that perception potentially? Um, are there areas that need to be repented of? Are there things that you've kind of laid aside or dropped the ball in that, that are clear commands of Scripture? Um, what potential areas of your life might cause someone to think you're lukewarm? What potential areas of your life would show that you are indeed not lukewarm? Right? Like if you were put on trial and we were trying to determine hot, cold, or lukewarm, what areas would, would a, uh, a lawyer try to bring, bring to the forefront of everyone's attention and say, here's evidence that this person is not lukewarm? Right, Because if we're going to be a church that's not lukewarm, we have to be made up of individuals who aren't lukewarm. And then number three, the church was blind to it, right? We have no indication that anybody in the church really recognized themselves as being lukewarm. There's not a pocket of people who were identified as the faithful who had resisted the lukewarmness of the rest of everyone else. You have that in several of these letters. You're guilty, but there's a remnant who isn't be like those people. In this church, there's no remnant that's not lukewarm. It seems like everybody is, and nobody realizes it. They were blinded to it. And I think it would be a mistake if we simply assessed ourselves and our church and said, we've got enough evidence to show that we're not lukewarm, so we must not be lukewarm, and us be blinded to it, right? And so that's where I challenged you. Are you willing to ask others in our church what they think about you in case you're blinded to your condition, to have some healthy discussion around the idea of, do you guys think there's areas in my life that are lukewarm that, that I need to, to reassess and to potentially even repent of, to have some honest, open uh, conversation within our accountability groups about that idea. Um, I continue to encourage you to consider doing that um, coming out of this study. All right, so that's kind of where we've been over the last couple of weeks, and here's where I think we need your help um, one, that's a big area of help right there to, to, to do that within the accountability groups for individual purposes. But then we also want to be faithful to consider our church as a whole and where we stand as a church as a whole and how we can be better as a church as a whole. Um, and so in our leadership retreat back in February, we talked about the idea of giving our church opportunity to give feedback to the leadership about where we're at as a church and things that maybe we're even missing as leadership within our church. And so I want to give you a sampling of some of the questions that we would like for you to consider in anticipation of a formal survey being given to you where you can offer feedback to leadership. That includes elders and deacons that we want to expose to this information. Um, question number one, what are we doing well as a church? Um, Jesus seems to always start off talking about the positives before he gets into the negatives. Oftentimes that helps people receive the negatives better. And so in anticipation of setting our leadership up in the best possible way to hear the other, um, I would encourage you to really think through and commend our church for things that we're doing well. 
um, doesn't have to just be what leadership is doing well. Just as a general uh, rule, what are some things that are good about our church that you would want to tell other people about our church? Hey, here's why you should come visit Sovereign Hope, because of this, 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 and this. What are some defining characteristics that you consider to be in the good, positive category that our church has figured out or has done well up to this point? Question number two, and you don't have to write these down because we're going to give these to you, but I just wanted to kind of present them to you to get you thinking. Number two, what areas within our church do you think we should focus on improving? Right? I'm sure you could come up with a long list of things that, that, that could be done better within our church. But if you were to prioritize some of the, the upper echelon top things that you would consider points or areas that could be improved upon and need to be uh, focused on, what would you list? Um, some things that need immediate attention within our church um, that would help us be better as a church long term. All right? And, and when I say be better, I'm, I'm using the standards that Jesus gives us that we already talked about, right? Um, the, the ideas of holding to true doctrine and enduring and persevering and being a church that repents. Uh, we want to be a, a better church in, in regards to what Jesus expects of us. Question number three. What suggestions would you make that would help make our church more effective in loving, serving, and impacting those inside and outside our church? What suggestions would you make? And so this one kind of goes along with question number two. Question number two is saying, what do we need to focus on? And the simple answer you might would write down and say, we need to be a church that loves others better. And that may be absolutely true. Question number three is more so, how do we do that then? All right, so, so what suggestions would you make and you can tie those in with some of your responses to question number two. What suggestions would you make that would help make our church more effective in loving, serving, and impacting those inside and outside our church? And so this is where you can talk about things inside this church that we're doing well, uh, and, and then also things that need to be improved upon, and then things outside that we're doing that we may need to be doing better at as well. All right, so question number two, maybe more uh, big picture. We need, to, we need to love better. We need to serve better. We need to be more mission-minded. Question number three, this is where you get to kind of provide some insight. Here's how I think we could do that. Here's how I think we could accomplish some of that. All right, question number four, what advice would you offer to the leadership of our church to help improve the efforts to shepherd, guide, and oversee the individuals and families of our church? Okay, so what, what feedback would you give? And this, again, just isn't for elders. This is in, this is in, um, in response to our deacons and what our deacons try to do within this church, also our small group leaders. Um, our C group leaders, what advice would you offer to the leadership of our church to help us improve upon our efforts to shepherd, to guide, and to oversee the individuals and the families of our church? And then the last question, number five, what do you personally feel like you can do to help be a part of the change that you suggested? Okay, so... Um, Sometimes surveys just ask for feedback, and it's a great way to just solicit thoughts and opinions, but I really want to tie it to us doing something with it and you identifying how you get to be a part of what you're kind of thinking and feeling. So this kind of protects us from it just being a, here's what you, get, here's what you do great, here's what you guys could do better, and I'm out, right? Like, thanks for my feedback, right? Like, this, this kind of ties you into it and says, okay, if you really have thought through this and you really mean this and you've really given time and attention to this, how, how can we help include you in being an answer to some of the things that you've raised potentially, right? And, and as leadership, I think we want to come into this expecting to see areas that we need to improve upon, right? These churches all just about had areas to improve upon. These were great churches that had been started by apostles and people who had spent time with Jesus. And so we're certainly far from that in those that have planted our church, right? Like none of us have spent time with Jesus. And so if the Jesus people who spent time with him had issues in their church plants, then we certainly identify that we're not where we want to be in all capacities of our church. And so we expect to hear criticism in the sense of, hey, here's where we can be better, right? But we also, we also want to tie you into how we can be better and not just try to respond to uh, feedback. We want to include all of our church members in that feedback and how to be an answer to some of the things that are raised, okay? There may be more questions to that. That may be all that we do. I don't know. Um, we hope to get that out in the next week or two. 
um, and kind of share that with you and give you opportunity. So I wanted to kind of throw those out to you and get you thinking so that when that does show up in your inbox and email format that you can begin to apply and write down some of the things that you've already been talking about. Maybe as spouses, you can talk about some of that. As families, you can talk about some of that. Um, For those of you with older kids that can even comprehend some of this, great to get some of their feedback as well, right? Like adults aren't more valuable than our kids, and so if they're capable of understanding some of these questions, then by all means, talk with them and let them help fill out this survey as well because we certainly want um, to include our children in the efforts that our church is engaged in as well. So um, encourage you to take these five questions and, and whatever else is attached to that and consider that because we really have an opportunity to apply a lot of the things that we've been talking about in these letters, and we certainly don't want to miss out on those opportunities. Uh, any thoughts or feedback before we transition into partaking of the Lord's Supper and um, concluding our service? All right, hopefully you've enjoyed and, and, and learned and been encouraged uh, through our initial study here in Revelation through these seven churches. I think I shared with you before, this is where a lot of churches stop in their discussion of Revelation. When you look up churches in their sermon series on Revelation, a lot of them go through chapter three and then silence afterwards because this is where it gets kind of confusing, hard to understand. Um, and I'm looking forward to working through chapter four through the end of the book um, moving forward. Um, but I hope you've um, been encouraged and, and hopefully even convicted where needed um, as we've worked through some of these churches. I think there's a lot to, to be said and a lot to learn and a lot to contemplate. And hopefully I can lead you and our elders and our deacons can even, um, in, in conjunction with that, lead you in considering some of these things and how we can apply some of this. Um, we do want to turn our attention now to partaking of the Lord's Supper. Um, this is an opportunity. We do this every time we have Application Sunday because uh, the Lord's Supper is really about reaffirming what it is we are as Christians, that we're reaffirming the gospel in our life, right? That um, the, the, the juice and the bread that we partake of is um, a representation of the gospel and what Christ has accomplished. And I like to remind uh, each and every one of us every time that we do this, especially uh, as we have visitors, what, what the Lord's Supper is in this church, because there's a lot of uh, different and varying views about it. And so Here at Sovereign Hope, by partaking of the Lord's Supper, this is not an act that saves you, nor is it an act that keeps you saved. This is an act of obedience. Jesus called us to do this in remembrance of his work and to do so until he comes back. So by partaking of this, this is uh, symbolic very much of what baptism is. Um, It would certainly be an administrative ordeal to try to baptize everybody every application Sunday to reaffirm the gospel in our life. And so um, this is another picture of that. We baptize once, ideally. uh, Someone comes to faith in Christ, we baptize them, and that shows to everyone else they've been immersed in the work of Jesus Christ, and they've come forth as a new creation. The Lord's Supper is an ongoing picture of that. Every time we partake and eat and drink, what we're saying uh, to ourselves, what we're saying to this local body is that we are still saying yes to Jesus, right? That the world has its offerings and we've chosen Jesus over the things of this world. Um, That we have chosen the work of Jesus over our own best efforts. That by partaking of the bread, we are saying Jesus's work, his righteousness is what counts for me. That, That my best efforts won't get me to, uh, to glory, that, that it's Jesus and what he's come to accomplish. And so we highlight the, 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 the life of Jesus by partaking of the bread this morning. We highlight the death of Jesus. Um, by partaking of the juice, we are admitting that we are sinners, um, that we have failed in the standards and the expectations that Jesus gives, right? He, he, he always follows up the, 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 common, the condemnation with the call to repentance, um, he, he understood that these churches weren't perfect and that they needed to repent of things. And um, by partaking of the, the juice this morning, we are once again admitting that we are not perfect um, and that we need the sacrificial death of Jesus to atone for our sins. And, and we certainly celebrate the fact that Jesus has done that and accomplished all that's needed for our salvation. And so uh, I'm going to pray for us and give you an opportunity to pray and to personally um, thank God for uh, the gospel and the opportunity to respond to the gospel in your life, the salvation that has been extended to you. Uh, we invite all of our believers here this morning to partake. Um, doesn't matter if you're a member of Sovereign Hope or not, you're invited to partake as a part of the universal body of Christ. Uh, but we do believe this is an act for Christians only, and so we would act, ask anyone who is not a believer to refrain from taking this morning. Um, and so you're invited to partake in the back. 
um, and Tyson will come and allow us to reflect uh, through song upon the truths that we're celebrating this morning. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for uh, just the chance to publicly read your word this morning, uh, to celebrate the fact that you are a God who is um, very intentional about communicating with people here on this earth. And uh, Father, we thank you that you are a God who uh, loved his creation enough to send his son Jesus to be everything that we are incapable of being. We thank you for the chance to celebrate this morning uh, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, Lord, we certainly celebrate what, what Jesus has come to do for us in his life by being perfect and earning and attaining righteousness on our behalf, the very righteousness that you talk about us being clothed in in the book of Revelation. Father, we're thankful that our robes can be washed in the blood of Jesus and can be made white. Uh, we thank you for the, for the juice and the sacrificial death that it represents this morning. We thank you that um, not only has perfection been attained for us, but forgiveness has been given to us as well through the, the work of Jesus. And Lord, we certainly long for and anticipate the day that Jesus comes back. Um, God, I pray that you would protect us from being a church that would warrant his premature visit upon our church in the form of judgment. Uh, God, help us to be a church that continues to endure and continues to persevere and continues to repent when we're not doing those things properly so that we can remain an effective church, a church that continues to uh, be a light and deserves a, a lampstand because you're uh, using us for your glory. Lord, I pray that um, you would encourage us this morning as we partake, encourage us to be attentive to your word um, as we leave and we continue to contemplate these areas of application. These questions are meant to be answered. And uh, God, I pray that you'd help us answer those so that we can further mature as a church, and that you would give us insight in evaluating ourselves corporately to where we can offer healthy feedback so that we can continue to improve upon the things that you've already done in and through us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.